All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum Stay on target. Maximum Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This is episode 48 where we're going to be talking about The Shining with some very special guests. That's an S at the end of that. First, I want to tell you about our project, The Libertarian Union, which is a collection of podcast feeds from other anarcho-capitalists and libertarians. And that is at libertarianunion.com. You'll find the Actual Anarchy Podcast, Liberty Weekly, Battle for Liberty, The ANCAP Barbershop, Don't Waste Your Hate, uh, Kyle's Files, Foreign Policy Focus, among others. So please do check that out. Hundreds and hundreds of different shows or different episodes available, five or six different providers, and we'll be adding more as we continue on. And uh, just so you know, this is the episode 48 of The Shining, actualanarchy.com slash 48. And if you enjoy the content that we put out here at the Actual Anarchy podcast, do check out our tip jar page where you can find out all the ways to support the work that we do here. You can find our Amazon links, our Liberty, Liberty Classroom links, our read it for me links among others, including our Patreon link where we can provide you a bunch of goodies and benefits for supporting us at a monthly rate. Do check that out at patreon.com slash read Rothbard. And one of my favorite things that we offer is the Rothbard repository, which is a database of Murray Rothbard lectures where you can search them by keyword, find out which lecture he spoke about a specific topic, go into that one and find the timestamp, the exact timestamp. This is a great thing if you're researching, if you're trying to find quotes from Rothbard, or if you're in a, in a debate with somebody and they're talking about how great taxi medallions are, you can find the three or four different lectures in which Rothbard talked about price controls and licensing and other government-granted privilege and just wipe those terrible arguments. So do uh, check us out at patreon.com slash readrothbard. Support us at the $10 a month level to get the Rothbard repository. Uh, there's a few other benefits that you can get. One is the behind the scenes, which is uh, the beginning of our show and the post show with some of our guests. And that is the $5 level at patreon.com slash readrothbard. Uh, we have a special treat for you guys tonight. We got a double team tag team with two guests, one returning from episode 41 and the other returning from what was it? What was it? It was our Rogue One episode 35. So we've got Doc Brown from our It episode 41 and Patrick McFarlane from LibertyWeekly.net from episode 35. You can check out both of their previous appearances at actualanarchy.com dash or slash 35 or 41 and doc just remind our audience who you are and then we'll uh, introduce patrick and we'll get into this movie with the google descriptione i am a doc i uh am a big stephen king fan and i have recently joined the libertarian slash ancap movement and i am glad to be here and i'm looking forward to learning more Happy to have you here. And Patrick, give us uh, your 30-second credential speech. All right. Yo, what's up? Patrick McFarlane from the Liberty Weekly Podcast. Uh, Y'all should know me by now because uh, Liberty Weekly Podcast has kind of become the sister show of actual anarchy. Um, So 
you'll be if you haven't already, you'll be seeing a lot of my stuff now. Uh, but I didn't realize that it was way back in episode 35 that we did something together because I don't know we we kind of talk all the time and we did a crossover episode. Do you do you remember the episode number, Daniel, that you guys jumped on just recently to talk Hollywood? I believe that was libertyweekly.net slash 37. And then we were on prior to that on libertyweekly.net slash 30 or 26, where we were talking about the Larkin Rose candles in the dark. Hell yeah. That is a really popular episode, by the way. I still get downloads on that. A lot of it from YouTube and stuff. So, so props. Thanks for coming on for that. Excited to uh, dig our teeth into The Shining here. One of my favorite movies. So yeah, let's go. So Dan, you all snowed in. You got your, uh, your wood axe. You're all good to go. Oh, yeah. The girls are dressed in blue dresses right now, and they're saying, come play with us forever. You got a lot of snow on the wires, or what's going on? Oh, yeah. You got snow out there, right? Oh, yeah, man. Snow. It's it's crazy. It's uh, it's very early in the year for us. It's sort of like in The Shining, you know, the, the <laughs> unseasonably cold, storm coming in way early. Uh, Robert, how are you doing, my man? You got snow over there? I do. I got super snow, and I'm like an idiot, left my car out in the snow, and I went to, you know scrape off the windshield and I realized that all the documents that I had in there were covered in a, like this super thick oil. Like that's a weird thing. And apparently I had left like a little bottle of oil, like, like, you know, grease oil, grease that you would like something squeaky, put it in there in your car. Apparently it gets so hot out here that it would like, I don't know, boil the oil or just like evaporate out because the bottle was empty and everything else was soaked. So if you could explain that scientifically, I'd be, I'd love to hear it, but yeah, I'm doing great. Other than that, I'm time. so confused though because you just said it was frozen. Yeah, in the summertime. Oh, so this like, happened a while ago. Op- and, okay. No, no, I'm just now discovering. I had no cause to ever open my glove compartment until now to get out the scraper for the windshield. You following my story now, Daniel? Oh, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I mean, <laughs> sweet. We had so much good stuff on our Patreon bonus content prior to this that uh, I, yeah. I didn't think you'd be able to surprise me any further. But here we are, live on the show, and. Uh, yeah, yeah, hot in the fault. summer there. And then then you need to get that uh, ice scraper, and there you go. There's oil on everything. Lubing it up, greasing it out. <laughs> okay, you got it. You got the story. Good. We can move on. Just we can move on. Yeah, Fourteen year old. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Well, hey, this is episode 48, everyone. We're talking about The Shining. This was originally going to be a Halloween episode, an extra special episode, uh, but timing just didn't work out. I I got hella sick, and then uh, we kept having to push back, push back. So we ended up making this our next Sunday episode, and we kind of felt like we'd already covered Halloween with prior episode um, being Night of the Living Dead which I, I felt was like a super awesome episode. And that was actually a listener of both the Liberty Weekly podcast and our podcast, and they became a guest. So that was Mike C. Excellent stuff. I really enjoyed having him on. And his music is actually pretty pretty fun to listen to. I have a link to that on our uh, show notes page, uh, actuallyanarchy.com slash 47. I almost said Liberty Weekly. See, Patrick, he, he's been influencing me. There you go. <laughs> So do you have uh, like three fingers of, of whiskey there or bourbon? No, Jack drinks I, bourbon, I have, right? I have my, I have my um, Earl Grey, like I had last time, <laughs> and my Shakespeare insult mug. So it says okay. things like bolting hutch of beastliness and you mountain of mad flesh and thou art a boil, a plague sore, and various varlet that ever chewed with a tooth. So I got some good stuff, you know? You should try some of those on Laura. Yeah, that would go over well. <laughs> Claude of Wayward Marl. And I don't even know what Marl is. M-A-R-L. So, whatever. I like the way it sounds. Yeah. And Quintessence of Dust. Canker Blossom. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Canker Blossom. You're a Canker Blossom. What the fuck is that? Sounds like something you might need to get checked out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, but I love that scene in uh, the, the one scene when he's at the bar with Lloyd, and it's Jack playing Jack drinking Jack. And I'm just, Jen pointed it out. And I went, holy crap, yeah, look at that. Talk about uh, all the things coming together. Speaking of coming, coming together, I was just about to do a weird orgy joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Now, Lloyd, the bartender, man, he's probably the creepiest uh, character in the entire entire movie for me. He was a perfect bartender, though. He was great. He just, yes, sir. But he was like a yes, sir kind of guy. Backing you up. You know? Yeah, but there's something in his eyes. There's something like he's got the dead eyes. Uh-huh. And I think that he is the he's the guy pulling the strings. He's like, it's on the house. House uh-huh. orders. Have you guys seen yeah, he's, Passengers? He's like, no, not yet. Okay. Passengers, they have the same uh, dude, but he's a robot. Yes, right. It's like, I think the robot dude is built off of Lloyd in The Shining. I do, because his mannerisms and everything are just like Lloyd. It's kind of interesting. Robert, yeah, yeah. Very much, yeah. I, yeah, there's a strong robot yeah, bartender guy, and he, I, I mean, he just plays a pretty much straight man bartender. So, yeah, I can see what you mean by that, for sure. Patrick, you got to see the movie, man. It's a good movie. And it's one of the few that's original. It's come out of Hollywood recently. Yeah, Passengers. It's about, a, it's about this. Uh, okay. It takes place in the future, and people are, humanity is colonizing distant planets. And what they do is they go into like a cryogenic sleep, and they travel to the planet. And then when they wake up, they can colonize and everything. So there's this one planet that's like, I don't know, 300 miles away or something like that. And about – like Years, years, sorry, yeah. Light years. Light years, right. And this one, the one guy wakes up like halfway through and it's like 90 years before the destination. So he's like, crap, I'm going to start aging normally again. I'm going to die before I get to the planet. And then it's this whole moral conflict within him and he wakes up Jessica Lawrence's character because who wouldn't wake up Jessica Lawrence's character? Jennifer. Jennifer Lawrence. Whatever. 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 <laughs> Too many foot pounds pressure per second per second. Oh, so I started a new um, daily post today for my Facebook page. Not like I don't have enough already, but it's going to be my daily capitalism sucks reflection post. So today we went to Red Lobster and stuffed our faces. I just had to take a picture of our feast and then post it. And I haven't looked at it since because I was doing a whole bunch of other things when I got home. But I'm sure all, all my Bernie friends are like, oh, my God. So it's going to be fun to check that out later. So it's going to be you bitching about something oppressing you that's actually like a plethora of choice. Like you're, you're oppressed yeah. by too many options. Yeah, like I'm going to go to the salad dressing area in the supermarket and take a picture of like a 12 feet, you know, of, of salad dressing and go, shit, this sucks. I wish I was in Venezuela, <laughs> you know? Yeah, there should be nothing on this shelf. Nothing. This is like oppressive to me. Look at all the slaves that had to go into making the salad dressing, you know? When you, when it, see, that's the thing. I think the key to arguing with the status is if you can, because they want freedom for them, for themselves. They just don't want freedom for everybody else. So if you exactly. get them into that corner where they're like, I want my freedom, then you're like, oh, so that's the case with everybody else. And like in this case, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Oh, no, no, that is what you meant. We can all read it. We can all see it. Yeah, we, we hammered the intellectual property pretty hard on episode 47. Yeah. Did we? Which one was I that? think so. That was the Night of the Living Dead. No copyright. It allowed it to flourish. It became a whole genre unto itself. I think we talked about it in, in regards to the movie. I don't know if we hit IP all by itself in general as much, but yeah, I know what you mean. Here's what I Cause said. I, I, you know, I got that article on um, that was talking mostly where I got all the information. 
from an anti-IP or a, an IP protectionist type of website that's like all about trying to pretend protect IP and was anti um, like plagiarism and like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the one article he conceded that oh well this is in one case the <laughs> lack of a copyright and an IP protection and all this blah 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 really helped out everybody involved and it was really fantastic. But in general, he's totally for it. Yeah, so it's an outlier for him. <laughs> Yeah, you got to stay consistent throughout or else it all falls apart once you get yeah. that crack, you know. Because I had said, stealing intellectual property is akin to victimless crimes, an artificial construct to create or reinforce a monopoly and power. You can't steal an idea since the idea never left the originator. It's like saying you'll steal a tweet or Facebook post. The tweet or post is still on the original wall or profile. It's just being utilized unexclusively by another agent for other means. The original person can still use the ideas they see fit. Just because that person doesn't come up with the new and innovative ways to use their idea doesn't mean they can stop others from applying it in new and innovative ways. So, and then of course they went into it from there. Right. Well, of course, if if they got their way, there'd be no rap music. There'd <laughs> yeah. be no movies, right? Because most stories, most novels, borrow from other experiences and other ideas. Yep. Isn't it pretty much? A well, everything is derivative. Yeah. Literally everything. There's no such thing as an original idea anymore. You know. You can trace every idea back to its original source at some point. Yeah, I mean and that's what I, one of the points I was getting at with my author friend. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. That's exactly what you're saying. Oh, and then after I got him into the taxation is theft, and I'm like, you're agreeing, but you just don't want to say you agree. He started getting into the greater good argument. I'm like, you really don't want to go here. <laughs> you really don't want to go to the greater good because there's so many different. You know, Hitler killed the Jews for the greater good of Germany. Oh, you there you go. You know, it's like, come on, just follow the logic, you know. Yeah, you can justify anything. That's the whole yeah. minicky thing. Yeah. Yep. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Robert, you had indicated that, that Doc is gonna need to carry this one, so no pressure there, Doc. Oh great. Well at least Well, there are four of us. <laughs> yeah. So it shouldn't I, be too bad. I'm here but for the I just didn't see a whole lot there. I mean, it seemed like a, you know, the plot was pretty bare and obvious and it, what happened happened, but there is like in the documentary, you know, there's some stuff, there's some stuff to unpack, I guess, maybe we'll see. Who knows? Yeah. Well, not, not to, I will repeat this in the show, but I think that this is one of those movies that bears multiple viewings and you'll get more out of it each time. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Although it's gotten funnier for me as I've watched it more. <laughs> Like Jen's seen it three or four times and I've seen it a bunch of times because I've had the DVD since I was in college. And uh, you just Jack, uh, Jack Nicholson's performance gets kind of kooky funny for me. You know how he was in the joke? You know how he played the Joker in the Michael Keaton Batman movie of like 1989? He kind of did that in The Shining. I kind of I kind of make the connection between the way he acted in both. And it seemed like they were fairly similar in terms of uh, mannerisms and whatnot. <clears throat> Like when uh, he's, he's the same, oil. same yeah. guy, right? Um, when he, he's he's tracking olive oil up the stairs and he's saying, you know, like love of my life and stuff like that. I've used that on Jen. And she's cracked up. And uh, just the things that he says and his manners. He was just funny. We, we got a good laugh at it. It's not so much terror anymore as it is humor, comedy. So. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. I definitely saw the, the Batman Joker as I was watching it. Mm-hmm. But he is perfect for the role. Um, he's, he was perfect for Jack Torrance. I thought he was great. The kid was good too. Whoever played Danny, he was he was good for the role. Oh yeah, 
<laughs> oh yeah. So my, I like my, the my, um, behind the scenes stuff that was taken by Kubrick's daughter. Have you seen that? It's like a 25 minute documentary making of. No, I haven't seen that one. Mm-hmm. That should be a special feature on your DVD there, bud. You know what's funny is uh, I need to get another universal remote. I lost mine. And um, I so I can't watch half my DVDs because I have a lot of TV shows like Full Twilight Zone. Um, I have a bunch of The Simpsons. I have All in the Family Lost. And I can't watch half of that stuff because you need the Universal Remote to go through the menus and, okay, go to this season or go to that episode or whatever. So um, when it comes to special features, I haven't been able to see that stuff for years. And, and I don't know if it's on the, the particular DVD that I have. I don't recall seeing it. It might be there, but I I don't recall having seen it. So. But it's something I'll look into. Sure. Is it on YouTube or anything like that? Oh, I imagine it is, yeah. Should be. Should be. Just about everything else is. Hey, you know what? I didn't know there was a TV ser- miniseries of this this movie. Yeah, I discovered that as well recently, and it looked awful. It does look awful. <laughs> I'm not going to watch that. I'll just give it a thumbs down now. Yeah. More, more true to the book, isn't it? Yeah. Supposed, actually, I, I read so many articles. And of course, everybody plagiarizes everybody. And um, several of the articles that I read said Stephen King is the only one that likes the thing because the, the miniseries because he he's the one who directed it and, and wrote in it. So we have to. Um, yeah. Right. But I, I was just saying, I don't have as much material for for this one as I do for it because like it was my first impression with Stephen King. The Shining is awesome, but I didn't read it until like three or four years ago. Okay. And did you read it more than one time? Nope. I only read it once. All right. Well, good enough. And Robert had never seen this movie before, and I'm really curious. I don't want to burn content here. Oh. (laughs) But I I almost want to get your impressions before we before the rest of us talk about it too much. Oh, you want to hear right now? What what do I think of this movie? Well, I do and I don't. Like, I want to hear it, but I also want it to be in the show. All right. Well, let's save it for the show. I mean, it's nothing spectacular. I don't have, like, a whole lot of, like, super insights. I, I watched that movie, and I was like, I wish I was younger watching this thing. Because oh, the whole movie or the 237 thing? Oh, uh, the 237 thing I thought was super entertaining. Um, but uh, we can get into that later. I don't want to burn content. But the movie itself was, I mean, I know some people think it's a masterpiece. Great. I'm glad you think it's a masterpiece. I'm glad. I mean, maybe it is. And for a certain perspective, it is. But I felt myself just being super bored, the whole thing. But I mean, maybe it's, it's also a different era of storytelling. Maybe I've been spoiled by other movies or conditioned to like other kinds of movies. I don't know. I mean, it was fairly well told. The acting is really good. And, um, man, I've got a serious thing for, um, what's her name? You do? <laughs> oh, yeah. For Duvall? You like her? Oh, dude, Shelley Duvall is smoking hot. Not so much in this movie, but in the Popeye movie. Oh, man, young young Robert watching Popeye. Olive like, oil. Yeah, wow. Oh, yeah, baby. Why, because she actually looks literally like a cartoon? Well, she looks like a, you know, a wafy, thin hot chick anyway but then yeah put her in olive oil make you know costume makeup and yeah she looks exactly like olive oil i have to get a butt bag hold on a second i mean she's just <laughs> smoking doc have you seen her lately? You, you, you're not dead no, no you cannot That's judge the ravages of time daniel uh, I, hit us all yeah you tell me when you're like seventy-five thousand years old and coming to me and you'd be like remember me when i was hot i'm like yeah you were hot it doesn't change what happened just because you're not hot anymore there will come a day when you are no longer hot, Daniel. Sorry. Well, let's move on to uh, uh, the, the Shining. 
super awesome movie in my my estimation. And Patrick, you were saying something similar. This is the Google description. This was a 1980 thriller, psychological horror, two hours and 26 minutes. It's a pretty long one. And it uh, has 8.4 out of 10 on the IMDb, 87% Rotten Tomatoes, and 85% of Google Google Lugers like it. Throwing, throwing some crazy words out there now. Uh, we've, been, we've been going for a while, folks, already. So here's what it says. Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, becomes a winter caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel in Colorado, hoping to cure his writer's block. He settles in along with his wife, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and his son, Danny, played by Danny Lloyd, who is plagued by psychic premonitions. As Jack's writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to tr- unravel into a homicidal maniac hell-bent on terrorizing his family. This is, of course, directed by the great Stanley Kubrick, based on a novel by Stephen King, who hated this adaptation, I might add. And uh, what do you guys think? Is that description fairly accurate? Let's go with Patrick, your your initial thought on that. I don't know. I have some quibbles with it, actually. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to read it. I think, so my quibbles are kind of based on the novel. I think that, yeah, there you go. Zoom in there. I think that... Obviously, the the novel, the film departs from the novel, uh, but this describes the novel a little more than the film, I think. What do you think, Doc? I agree with you on that one. And it's not just writer's block, it's alcoholism, uh, inherited inherited violent gene, violence gene, and some other quirky stuff in there, too. Yep. Yep, yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Violence gene. Are we saying that your DNA is predisposed to violence? Is that, is that uh, what it that, is? That's the slight insinuation in the book. Yeah. Okay. Like father, like son. It's the cycle of. So it's not his fault. No, it's not his fault. Of course not. He gets a trophy. (laughs) Okay. Good. Good. He gets participation. Father of the Year award. That's right. Only tried to kill his family once. Once. Only once. Right. And he failed, so he 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 just gets a a runner-up trophy. He's a major loser. He can't take out his own five-year-old kid. You know. Back. So he really only killed one guy who's trespassing, sort of. So yeah, he's a hero. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is interesting. That is the one um, actual act of, of horror-type violence, right? Like, he only attempts violence at the others, but um, it's Dick Halloran who's the only one who actually gets killed, right? In the film, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what so... It? It's different in the book. Well, I don't, Much I don't different. know anything about it. Tell me. Yeah, Patrick, you go. Spoiler alert? <laughs> we don't have spoilers on the actual Anarchy podcast. Um, well, actually, in the, in the book, Dick Halloran does not die. And Jack, and in the book, the whole hotel explodes because the boiler is so old that it needs to be dumped off every, I don't know, four hours or something like that. And Jack Nicholson's character just goes insane and basically forgets to keep dumping off the boiler. And it just builds up and builds up and then explodes. And um, Danny and his mother, played by Shelley Duvall, are outside when this happens. And I think Dick comes to rescue them, doesn't he? But Yeah, he gets hit in the face with a mallet. See, in um, the, 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 the movie, he carries an axe around. In the book, he carries a mallet around. I'm thinking like a polo mallet or something like, like a, that. Like a rock mallet? If that's yeah. A, yeah. And he smashes Halloran's face in, but that doesn't apparently kill the guy because Jack's just really bad at killing people. So um, the wife and the kid actually help Halloran get out before the place explodes. And uh, yeah, there's there's just some significant differences, which we can get into later on between the book and the movie, which actually play out in the movie. Um, one of the pictures that I see on the screen right now that Dan you have pulled up is the image of the guy on the bed with the, the guy at the foot of the bed in the uh, dog costume. And the guy in the dog costume 
plays a fairly significant role in the latter half of the book. Whereas in the movie, he just he's on the screen for two seconds, and you're like, what the hell is he doing in the freaking movie? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. Uh, I thought that was, uh, you're saying that's a dog costume? That looks like Man Bear Pig to me. <clears throat> Yeah, well, it's supposed to be. Uh, I think it's. A, I think it's supposed to be a dog, right, Patrick? In the, the book, it's a dog or is it a bear? I'm pretty sure it's a dog. I think, I think it's a bear in the book. Is it a bear? I okay, it might be. Yeah. More terrifying in in the book, I think. Yes, much more, because he's a malevolent uh, spirit who can really harm you. Yeah, an echo of past. Yeah, right, poltergeist kind of thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I love the story. I just uh, I, I really wanted to be on for this episode because it's not just the story of the novel, but I think what we're dealing with here are two. And I'm a fanboy, so take this with a grain of salt. But I think we're dealing with two different masterpieces here. I think the Kubrick film is a fucking masterpiece. And I also think that the novel itself is a masterpiece. So, um, yeah, big fan. Although so, the events of the novel are kind of eluding me at this moment, though. It's been... I don't know, a year since I've read it. So what were you going to say, Robert? Sorry. Well, we'll get into it later, but there's this documentary called Room 237 that we'll be talking about. And in that documentary, they claim that the movie is actually about many different things. But one of the main themes that runs through it, and I say probably the most credible, would be the discussion of the genocide of like the Native Americans and maybe the Holocaust and that sort of thing. Is it, is any of that present in the book or what are the major themes would you say are in the book or is it just a straight kind of like a horror novel? Yeah. So, so the book is a character struggle in my opinion. The book has nothing to do with those extracurriculars, if you will. Um, and, and maybe you'll, you'll back me up here, doc, but I think that the book itself is, is a very, very rooted in Jack's character. And J- Danny, I feel like is, is kind of exposing Jack's character throughout the book. But the reason why I think the Kubrick film is a masterpiece in of itself is because it adds, it's its own beast, essentially. It's its own work. It, Kubrick kind of took, took the, the bones of what Stephen King had put out there and put his own flesh on it. So what, what do you think, Doc? I agree. There's really nothing in terms of Native Americans or, or like uh, German references or anything of that nature. And it's only briefly mentioned in the movie, too. Um, I had just had a thought in my head and it went away. Oh, it's very, it's very focused, centrally focused on the, the three. And um, that's pretty much it. But you do get the history of the Overlook in much greater depth, much greater detail. Um, it's got a very lurid history. There's been a lot of like mafia and gang members because the guy who built the place and owned it had connections to the underground, the criminal underground. Um, so there was a lot of really bad stuff happening in the place, which just kind of built up the negative energy that supposedly already existed there. And in the book that actually infuses into Jack and kind of takes him over kind of like, almost like something like you would see in the exorcist, for example, uh, with the girl in the exorcist. Whereas in the book, it's just, or in the movie, it's just more of a nudging along and a little bit here, a little bit there to the point where he does it in and of himself autonomously Whereas the hotel gets inside of him in the book, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Totally. Is, yeah. the, um, is, it, is it on top of an Indian burial ground in both versions? Yeah. Yeah. Is that essentially so? But the book goes into more detail as to why this place might be particularly haunted. Right. Because of its of its uh, negative history. Not so much really made Americans. That's just kind of like a side thing. Like he's, he's touched on it more in other books uh, Stephen King has, with, like, say, for example, Pet Cemetery. 
which is where the powers of that particular cemetery come from. It comes from a Native American curse, I believe. Um, I, I always got hung up on why only Native, Native American cemeteries and graveyards have this negative connotation. Like in the Poltergeist franchise, it's the same thing. Their house is built on a freaking Native American graveyard. So what? It's like, you know, the, the New Netherlands graveyards in the 1600s didn't have anything attached to them. It's like, you know, whatever. Uh, just goes well, with the ethnic thing. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. There's just the connotation of them getting fucked over and being angry. Yeah. I mean, that's the only difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you want to look at history in a vacuum like that, sure. But that's how we do it nowadays. Look at history in a vacuum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, but in the book, uh, I know we, we keep going back to the book, and this is more of the, the focus on the movie, but we can get all this out of the way kind of at the beginning anyway. Um, in the book, Jack kind of like tears himself open and there's like kind of like a demon inside of him and whatever humanity jack has left inside of him he he holds that demon back enough for danny to get out of the basement get his mom get halloran out of the, the hotel before it blows up so it's yeah it's almost like you remember that movie the fly and toward the end of it the remake of the fly in the 80s with gold blue i think the guy's name was gold bloom and the fly kind of like at the end of the movie, all the humanity that's left in, in Goldblum's scientist character goes away. In the book, it's kind of like that where this demon eventually comes out of um, Jack Torrance. But in the movie, it's it's it's. I think I read about Stanley Kubrick wanting to stay as much away from the um, supernatural horror aspects and more in the psychological suspense aspects of the whole thing and keep it more realistic, which he did to great effect, as Patrick said. Just marvelous, absolutely marvelous. And I think the novel was a ref, kind of a reflection of Stephen King himself because he had a big problem with drugs and drinking. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I think he said that he doesn't even remember writing Cujo because he was high on coke the whole time and drinking Listerine. <laughs> that, did he uh-huh. hear that? And, and it. Yep. And it and some of his earlier. I think Carrie, too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I don't. I don't. Wasn't Carrie was his first? So maybe. I don't know. Was anyways aside aside the point, but uh, yeah, I I think I I do like the more character. Well, I don't want to say that the novel is more character driven, uh, but the novel is more centered centered around Jack and the generational like domestic violence. I think where Jack's father was abusive and an alcoholic, and then so Jack mm-hmm. himself. And there's a great aspect of the novel. There's a side story where. Jack has this friend, right? Do you remember that? He had a friend from his teaching. Yep. Yes. Guy's name is Al or something like that. Yeah. 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 And they they killed someone, right? No. What happened was they got, they were both drinking buddies. They got completely blue and Jack was driving and they ran into a kid's bike. Yeah. But there was no kid around, but it was enough of a symbolic moment for them to say, well, you know, that could, there could have been a kid there and we could have run over the kid. But he, in the book, he was an English professor, and he got uh, he got fired because he found one of the students slashing the tires on his car, and he beat the crap out of the kid. <laughs> and they're like, "That's it, you're gone, you're out of here." Yeah. So yeah, that gets more into the backstory of that very first scene where Jack's getting interviewed at the Overlook Hotel. And in the book, it's much more intense because the guy's confronting him like, we know why you got fired from whatever. And the only reason you're getting a job here is because one of your friends who's very influential here at the lodge, whereas it's kind of, you know, calm and everything's okay and smooth sailing in the movie. So. Yeah, see, exactly. I kind of had a problem with that. I, I would have liked more of that. 
I would have liked more of a setup for Jack's character to turn because the big problem I had with this movie and probably the only reason I'm Mr. Negative about this movie and everybody else Mr. Positive, I don't know, but is is his sudden turn. Um, he goes from rational, normal husband, loving husband guy to total asshole from one scene to the next. And then, you know, he doesn't, it's not as gradual and there's no real setup for him to be, well, this is a potentially mentally disturbed person. Maybe we should, or maybe we should not hire this guy to do this job where previous people have gone insane when they have done it. Right. I think it's like, he's like a normal guy. And then all of a sudden he goes crazy in the movie. So I, I assume there's more in the book from what you guys are saying. There's more in the book. It seems like there should have been more. I wanted more of that in the, in the, in the story. I think there's a a hint of it in the film. And let, so let's, let's uh, dive in scene by scene here as as we start. um, I got something I want to say about the introduction, but there are hints of it in the film. If you know where to look, if you've read the book and you know, the towels, like in that first scene where he's in, being interviewed with Allman, if you look real close in high definition at his face, his mouth is red. And Doc will know the significance of this is that he has been rubbing his mouth and he rubs his mouth when he's drinking or when he's not drinking. I think it's when he's right. Yeah. And he really wants to drink. That's when he starts doing it. And he does it a lot in the book. Yeah. And, yeah. and you can see his mouth is red. It's red in that first scene. If you go back. Yeah. yeah little Easter eggs. Yeah. But uh, I think, I don't know if I'm kind of taking the bull by the horns here, but let's go scene by scene. Right. So, so this is, this is a film I think that is best viewed in the dark, in isolation at night, maybe with the aid of some substances, but definitely, <laughs> definitely substances for me. Yeah, exactly. So, in the beginning, the, the ambiance just builds. You have to lose yourself in the film and let it take you away. And right away, and I was going to push back, Doc, on your, um, your comment that the film isn't a supernatural. Um, I think the, the very setup is because, and I don't want to misconstrue what you said, but the very setup is because the very opening, I think that creepy like Native American sound is a Wendigo that has occupied the hotel. Really? Yeah. I think you're not misconstruing what I'm saying. I'm just, uh, if, I guess if I need to be a little clear, um, would be that um, it's not played up on nearly as much. And yeah. like, I know you want to go scene by scene, but it's like um, just about every scene in the book involves some kind of heavy supernatural element. For example, there's a topiary um, yeah. garden where in the movie it's a maze. In the book, it's like, you know, bushes that are carved to look like elephants and lions and stuff like that. And these things come to life and there's some kind of poltergeist demon that, that kind of inhabits that whole area. And at one point, Danny almost dies from an attack. And at one point, Jack almost dies from an attack. Um, but it's kind of, super, it's there, like it's there in the background, it's white noise and it's always there suppressing the movie, but in the book it's over and it's in your face. If that makes sense. And it's more variegated too. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, I don't have any quibbles with that. Okay, good. <laughs> well, that's a massive difference because it there's is. just it is. one supernatural yeah. element in the movie. And because there was only one, I thought it was incredibly lame. So dumb. Are you talking about uh, the woman in room 237? No, I'm talking about when oh. Jack is locked in the dry goods. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Ghost opens a door. Yeah. Really? <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, I could. I could. Why? Why only that. there? Why not beforehand? You need to set up the fact that the idea that this ghost can affect the material world in that way. I thought it was just well, that's a convenient thing. Well, the ghost so Jack, there's no way for him to get out. Oh, the ghost is going to help him out. Dumb. Well, the the oh, ghost well. does put alcohol and stocks the bar. That's the only other supernatural thing I can think of. Oh, see, now I never thought that that was a real thing. I thought that was him like hallucinating because he was he was all of a sudden back in the past, and there's all these people dressed up in like flapper gear, like 1920s uh-huh. style stuff. That's mm-hmm. true. So you think that uh, that the the, the the twins, and you think the Blood that was all hallucination and yeah, and I guess there's the scene where they're like cleaning up blood afterwards. Right, right, right. Um, you know yeah. the the scene where there's like skeletons and whatnot, uh-huh. all that stuff. Yeah. I, I thought was them just tripping out mm-hmm. and being you know giving like hallucinations or whatnot. There is a great dichotomy. Go ahead, go ahead, Patrick. So I, right, so yeah, I thought it was more of a psychological thing where this is all in their minds, and that, that was more interesting to me. I mean, I have it one way or the other, or at least if you're right. going to have the ghosts be able to affect the physical world establish that beforehand not at some critical plot point all of a sudden late in the game where you need some kind of deuce ex machina to come along and make the plot go along still because otherwise he's locked in that room and the family gets away no problem yep mm-hmm. so anyway I agree. Daniel, do you have any uh, chimes in here buddy you're obviously silent you're <laughs> Well, I was I was noticeably absent for the book portion because I, I did not read the book, did not do the book report. The dog ate my book report. But I do have some just general commentary related to the movie. And that is, you know, Kubrick's take on this movie was it was a simple story about a family going insane together. It's kind of this cabin fever thing. They're trapped out. They're isolated. And I know in, in the film, Robert, you were saying that it seemed sudden, but this is actually, you know, the course of a couple of months that this goes on. And there's a, a pacing that, that Kubrick put together where initially, you know, there's the interview and then there's when they first arrive at the Overlook. And then it's like a month later and then it's a few days later and then it's a few hours like that. The time segments accelerate and you sort of already know early on that Jack has some problems, right? And they allude to this. I mean, they sort of give you all these tells. And I think I was mentioning in the pre-show that this is a movie that bears re-watching because you'll pick up more and more of the subtleness. Um, and I don't know if, if you guys have already discussed this or not. I was um, sort of thinking about what I wanted to say. So, you know, sorry. So my wife gets mad at me about for not listening to her. Um, the Kubrick is very intentional in what he puts on screen. He takes the story but he's also like more of an artist like he's trying to convey subliminal messaging that you may not have an awareness of or a perception of and he'll do this to throw you off to create unease in the viewer and one of the initial you know the very first tracking shot or the first opening is the helicopter shot looking down in the car and in this might be a cultural thing but there's an expectation as a viewer that the shot is going to track a certain way, and he purposely does the opposite. Uh, it's also also similar to how the music that's chosen is not only eclectic, so you can't quite understand or follow what's going to be the next piece of music to come in, because music does convey a lot of messaging within a within a film. It's very common. You know, it'll get it'll build up, be more exciting. It'll it'll um, uh, hit in an area that's supposed to be uh, uh, an intense moment, he plays with that. He'll do an intense musical note or a moment in a very mundane scene, but he'll contrast that with something 
crazy happening on screen, like the first appearance of the girls in the game room, with no change in the music whatsoever. And he'll also hold on to reaction shots before he reveals what the what the actor is seeing. So he'll get you emotionally invested into what are they seeing, you know, questioning what's happening. Uh, so it's it's all these subtle cues that are going on in in how he's presenting the story. And there's also a whole bunch of um, imagery that's suggestive, both with color and also uh, one of the things I noticed is there's chandeliers that are lit or unlit, and they almost appear as if they're crowns uh, throughout the the movie. And I felt that those were significant in indicating um, who was the good guy, who was the bad guy, who was going to be murdered. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the gold room scene during the um, the tour of the hotel, where they introduced Dick Halloran to Jack, there's a chandelier above Halloran, and there's a chandelier above Jack. One is lit, one is not. Guess which one is not lit? <clears throat> Poor dicks. Poor dicks. So I, th- I think that Kubrick was a master of this style of presentation to create this tension, uh, not only with the visuals, but also with the music. And it's, in, it's, it's meant to like throw you off so that you as a viewer can never get comfortable. Like you never quite know what to expect because all of the normal cues that you would expect from movies you've seen for 20 years, 30 years now, uh, he eschewed those tropes. <laughs> he went away from those intentionally to throw you off. Yeah, the, the movie is unsettling as hell. I mean, there's so many Easter eggs in it. And I got to tell a story about one time, one time, excuse me, one time that I, I, so I fell asleep with the DVD playing right in the middle of the film because I honestly, even though it's my favorite film, I cannot sit through an entire playing of The Shining. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys have the same experience, but it just puts me to sleep. It's like Blade Runner in that same way. I have a short attention span, but I love deep, like, immersive films like this um one time i was sitting on the couch and i fell asleep to it and i woke up at like 2 30 in the morning and the film had finished and reverted to the dvd menu and it had replayed the intro music over and over and over again so when i woke up i was disoriented and it was pitch black in the middle of the night and i was freaked the fuck out i've never been so terrified in my life and it's that unused man it's that unused that you were just talking about it's just crazy um, but but one one visual cue that I wanted to men- mention if we're going scene by scene was uh, Allman has a red tie on at the beginning, and I think that signifies the elevators of blood because if you look at the shot, it looks like he's decapitated and the tie is his slit throat or something like that. I don't know. What do you guys think? I can see that makes sense because I, w- I did notice it was a very wide tie. Um, and I noticed that because it covers up just about all of his business shirt underneath his uh, suit shirt. Uh, well, that's something I just pegged it up to. That's the fashion. That was the fashion of the era. I didn't uh, take that into account. But that's good. That's good uh, insight right there. I like that. Yeah, I mean, who knows if it's deeper meaning or not? But I, I just noticed it for the first time after having it be my favorite film my whole it's life. Kubrick, everything. Covering new shit, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So one other, other 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 movies that Kubrick has done. I mean, 
you keep talking about how he's so intentional with what he puts on screen and how this means that and these could mean other things and Clockwork Orange probably would be my first pick. Um, I know we we talked about how Rothbard uh, would review movies under First Nighter, Mr. First Nighter, and he fucking hated 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I can totally, I can see why he hated it. But if I was to choose, because I, I can't sit through 2001 A Space Odyssey. I never have. But yeah, I Me can't. Neither. But um, but. Clockwork Orange is another one of my absolute favorites, and I think that one is full of imagery as well. Oh, yeah, I would have picked 2001 right away. For imagery, I would have picked 2001 right away. Yeah. And um, Eyes Wide Shut, um, especially with the Secret Society and everything. Oh, my gosh, that's all loaded right there. So those would be my two picks for major imagery. I haven't finished Eyes Wide Shut yet. I know I need to, but it's another slow movie. Yeah. For me, being a conspiracy theorist in a certain sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's right up your alley, man. Yeah. Uh, Full, Met- Full Metal Jacket is also an excellent film. Oh, yeah, I forgot that one. <laughs> and then I, I understand that Barry Lyndon is also a, a well-done and, and interesting film, though I've never seen it. It's more. I've seen it a couple times. It's pretty fucking. I mean, it's a good movie, but it's fucking. It's boring. There's not really much happens. <laughs> it it was known for being a flop. It's it's it. Well, in that room two three seven documentary we watched, the the quote unquote expert amateur guy is saying that Barry Lyndon, the film of a genius who's bored, and I think. I don't know. There's some truth to that analysis, I think. Because that was the one right before The Shining, right? So that was his his argument <clears throat> was that Kubrick had done everything that was expected or, or within the medium. And so he, he ventured out with The Shining to make something super creepy, right? Like he was going beyond just mere filmmaking, but also throwing in all this subtlety and subliminal and uh, beneath the surface stuff to throw people off to make it more of a visceral experience, more more of an emotional experience on, on top of a very simple story, uh, but making it much more than that. And Robert, I, th- I felt like this would be right up your alley because many of our conversations have gone towards you want to see there to be danger and tension built up throughout a movie. And so I'm a, I'm a bit surprised that, uh, that you're not a fan of this at the moment. But I, I also go back to, I think this bears multiple viewings to kind of pick up on all of this stuff. And not that, I think it's an acquired taste is what I'm trying to say. Not, not that you're an idiot. <laughs> oh, thanks. But, Thank you for that, Daniel. You know, not, not like oh, he's throwing generous. Some, some heat by you and you missed it. No, what I mean is it's one of those things that, that it just builds up on you as you watch it more and more that you start to see things um, okay. and it becomes more intriguing. That's good. I'm glad that you can find new things that a movie is so dense that, you know, if you're really a huge fan, you watch it repeatedly. Like, if you watch like a movie like the Lego movie and you watch it again and you see a, you hear a new joke or you notice a new joke that you didn't see before. Great. I love it. It's fantastic. But uh, for me, this movie was, well, first of all, I really enjoyed the fact that it's a writer trying to get away from it all to get some writing done. I thought that was fantastic. But yeah, right up my alley. I was like, I'm right on board with this guy. But I did not get the sense of the tension and the danger and the threat. I thought that there was a bunch of people hanging around doing nothing. And it was super slow, like all of Kubrick's movies. I, the movie you mentioned, Full Metal Jacket, is probably, in my opinion, his best work. But uh, I could probably be convinced otherwise, maybe, if someone makes a really good argument. It had a scene. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've seen 2001. I mean, that scene in Full Metal Jacket with the guy committing suicide is just so powerful. Um, that movie really sticks out to me. 
the horrors of war and that sort of thing. Maybe it's very more of a visual, visceral. Maybe I'm just too visual of a person. I don't know. But this movie was so slow. And then the, the sudden turn where all of a sudden this guy's just an asshole for no reason. And I get that. I understand that it's like a haunted place and he's supposed to be disturbed and whatnot. But me as a viewer, I didn't really get enough of an explanation as to why all of a sudden he's turning. Now, maybe the point they're making is that, you know, that's the horror of mental illness. Like, I don't understand why you are crazy. Why are you crazy? And you're not, you look fine. You know, you should be fine. And that's kind of scary, right? The idea of losing your mind or having a loved one lose their mind when they appear fine, that could be terrifying. But for whatever reason, maybe the mix between the supernatural and the psychological horror thriller type thing, or just the super slow pacing, um, it just did not do it for me. I I was bored the whole time. Um, when I thought Jack, Nich- I thought Nicholson was great. I mean, I thought his performance was fine. Performances were fine across the board for what they were able to do or what they were given to do. Um, but man, it just did not the the tension. I did not feel it. There was no building anything. There's no rising dread of any kind. It was just like here's a happy family. They're up in the mountains doing the stuff, and then oh, dad's a dick now, and now dad's gonna try and kill us for no reason, and we got to run away and escape. Okay. That's your story. Lost on me. All right. And if you if you have to if you have to watch a movie ten times in order to get it, I think you are being too subtle. I think there's some fair criticism there. Although I would disagree with some with the I don't know the out of the blue or the pacing. I don't know. I think there are some tells. But what do you think, Doc? Um. Well, there's plenty of foreshadowing um, to help get you in the right frame of mind. Like when he's doing the interview. And the guy runs the place is talking about the previous guy who murdered his family. It's like, okay, you know, this is a red flag right here. That's pretty intense. But, uh, you know, then he has a mild outburst where he, he's walking through the kitchen. He throws a whole bunch of metal, I think, pipe pans on the ground and stuff. It's just tiny little itty bitty things. Like I saw what Kubrick was trying to do, but I have to agree with Robert to an extent that Kubrick didn't do the best job at it. He could have done a lot of things differently. But and he was so subtle with some of the things that he did. Like you have to really pay attention, and then it just it escalates rather quickly. I'll give I'll give you that too quickly. Um, but I I just just the building itself is overwhelming, and as Danny said, with Daniel said with the um, the music and the cinematography, it just gives you that weird feeling, you know. And um, you know, I kind of experienced tension throughout the entire movie. Like I, you could tell that this was a dysfunctional family before they went there and they were trying to figure things out, you know, like uh, with the interview with the psychologist or the physician, whatever she was, um, when Danny had his first outburst out, his, his first thing with Tony, and he was brushing his teeth in the bathroom and he had his fit. And that's when Wendy mentioned about Danny's arm being ripped out of the socket because Jack had a drunken rage kind of thing. And it's like, okay, this is from the beginning. We're getting to something pretty, pretty deep here in terms of abuse and dysfunction and just not being happy in general with life. And then of course the the whole Tony voice that the kid did was magnificent. I thought it was beautifully rendered and um, the sound of the voice and the little finger, that's freaking wacky, you know? And that just adds to it. But, you know, everybody's got their own way of looking at it. I just saw it 
I just saw it as a very intense movie. And the thing is, it goes so slow that it's almost like plotting through it. It is. But that's how a lot of movies were back then. I mean, Hitchcock movies are kind of the same way. The first time I saw Psycho, I was like, come on, what the hell is this? The first half of the movie is so slow. So I guess that's just the way that that's just the style of the movies back then. If you're going for the higher art form, so to speak, because they focused more. I think they were focusing a lot on the visuals. I think this movie was great in terms of camera action and angles. Like, for example, when Jack's chopping down the door, the bathroom door, and the camera follows the swing of the axe over and over, that was cool. Or when he's locked in that that food closet, that storage container, and um, he's doing a little thing with his fingers on the door, and he's, he's pushing on the inside of the door handle, and, and he's locked in there, and it's looking at him from below as opposed to a wide normal shot or when um danny is riding around the hotel on his little tricycle and you're getting danny's view just a little further back behind almost like you're a spirit following danny around you know the, the cinematography was just i thought just magnificent so yeah, and I'll jump off on a couple of things you just said. So similar to what we were saying earlier about throwing you off with the music and, and the camera angles, and then you mentioned the cin- cinematography, he takes his time to show you the layout of the hotel. You're tracking behind Danny, you're walking through during the tour, and you sort of get a, a sense of the place and the layout. And mm-hmm. I think this is one of those subtle things, but many of the elements are actually impossible. So only upon further close viewing of the movie, do you notice that Ullman's window in his office can't possibly be there because it's on the interior of the building. There's a hallway behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, similar, the great room that they go through, what do they call it? The Colorado Lounge. There's a whole yep. bank of windows that they're walking through that room and there's the stained glass along the top. As soon as they mm-hmm. cross the threshold behind the stairs where they talk about how royalty stayed there and there's the, the Indian um, portrait, people walk they emerge from a hallway that can't possibly be there. Um, when they're tracking behind Danny, they do it three different times. The first time is just a rectangle. It's just around the Colorado Lounge, through the service area, and then back. The second time, it takes him up a level, and it shows him tracking around, and it shows him both the Colorado Lounge on his left and then on his right. And then the third time, it shows him escalating from one section, one floor to the next floor in the um, staff quarters in the blue area where he encounters the girls, uh-huh. the twins. And uh-huh. each of these things show impossible uh, layouts, like things that can't possibly be where they are presented. Uh, room 237 is another example. How that room is laid out in the hallway, there's a there's a door into other rooms every 15, 20 feet, whatever. But how that room is laid out uh those doors couldn't possibly be another room because room 237 takes up that space, that volume of the hotel. Uh, another example is when Wendy is, is helping Danny out the window when Jack is, is breaking down the door with the axe. Uh, if you recall earlier in the movie when they're showing the apartment to the Torrances, there's a window uh, in their living area. And there's also stairs getting into the living area from the entry door. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also a, an entry door to the hallway from the bedroom with no stairs. And when we see the ex- exterior of the hotel with Danny escaping, it's in the middle of the hotel. 
So around the corner should be the bank of windows that you could see from their bedroom, but it's not possible to be there because it's the interior of the hotel. So there's all of these different elements of the layout of the hotel that are not possible. And it leads me to believe that it's telling you either subtly that this is not real, this is a dream, or it's it's just another device that he uses to unawares to the viewer, make them feel uncomfortable. Because without looking at it, you're not going to notice these things, uh, you know, without being keyed into them specifically. But subconsciously, um, I think that you will pick up that, well, there's no way that could be there, but you're not going to be aware of that. You follow what I'm saying? Like, it's a way to, to continue to put you at unease without being overt about it. Mm-hmm. So, so could, you're saying that Stanley Kubrick went through all this effort to create this slight unsettling feeling? Yeah, I believe he did. It's not just that he built a different set and then they filmed the scenes and then, then you're going back and trying to piece it together. Because all movies are built on like sets and they don't exist in the real world. If you watch the movie, like, where's that movie with Antonio Banderas and Sylvester Stallone set in Seattle? I mean, they'll be in Woodland Park like one scene and then they'll flash to the next scene and they'll be downtown as if 20 seconds has taken place. But instead it's been actually, you know, it would have had to have been 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, that you're, giving, you're giving Kubrick a lot of credit here, which is fine. I mean, if he spent a whole lot of time and <sighs> built all these sets and whatever to, but it sounds like you're, you're, it sounds to me like you're giving him so much credit. Like you could have, all that stuff could have been like happy accident or at least some of it, or at least a good deal of it. Like, Hey, we, we filmed it on a set. Of course, it's not a real hotel. I mean, they actually built, I think they built for the movie. They mentioned that in the 237 movie that they built a, a smaller version of a hotel. And then they also built some, they, they filmed at an actual other location. So, I mean, the discrepancy between filming those two locations could explain what you're talking about. Or or he's going through all that effort to create just a slight unsettling feeling in the audience. I, I don't know which is more. I mean, Occam's razor would lead me to believe one instead of the other. But I, I think it's interesting that you're you're looking into it this much because you enjoy the movie so much. That's great. Yeah, and I think that a lot of it has to do with Kubrick has a certain um, style that leads me to believe that that is 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 intentional. Like he's known yep. for being very particular, and he will do fifty or a hundred takes for each scene to get the exact nuance or the exact emotion that he was trying to elicit out of the actors. Yeah, I heard he pretty much tortured Shelley. Yeah. <laughs> and and actually the um the little documentary making of it's like twenty five or thirty minutes that I was telling you about, there's there's scenes of that, of those interactions. So you might want to check that out at some point if you can find it. It's probably on YouTube somewhere or it's an extra on a DVD. So it's Kubrick's fault why she doesn't look great right now. That's what you're saying. All right. <laughs> I think the difference being with just to just to chime in on that continuous shot, I think the difference being is that in the film it's a continuous shot and it's done purposefully. Whereas and maybe this is just an offhanded example, but whereas in the Stallone movie there's I'm sure there's a cut. It's more of a continuity error instead of a deliberate, okay, this doesn't make sense, you know. Well, but they also I mean he built a set. I mean, I don't know what, are you trying to say that he used some sort of a CGI or he used some sort of a move set apparatus or I think he, I mean, what, what is the, what is the argument here? Did he I, film I, on an actual that, haunted location that, that, that transformed? No. <laughs> no, that it was deliberate and that, it was, um, you know, there was, you made a point to make sure that the continuity didn't make any sense at all when Danny was, uh, when he's, you know, riding his tricycle through the hotel and, and those, those, uh, 
illogical continuity errors are just, they're too deliberate and too populated to be just continuity errors. You know what I mean? Yeah, there were two that were also brought up in the 237 documentary. One was in the initial bathroom scene where he first talks to Tony and sees the elevator of blood. Um, In the opening of that scene, there's a a sticker on his door of Dopey of the Seven Dwarfs. And then when he's um, being attended to by the doctor, that sticker is now missing. And the thought is that that mission, the, 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 the statement of that is that he's no longer oblivious to this thing. He now knows that the Overlook Hotel portents danger to him. So he's no longer dopey about it. And then the other continuity issue that uh, couldn't otherwise be, um, it, it's very unlikely to be a mistake. And that is during the confrontation between Wendy and, and Jack when he's at his typewriter, uh, it'll show a chair behind him against the wall, cut to Wendy, go back to Jack, that chair is gone, cut to Wendy, go back to Jack, the chair is there. And I, I said there was two, but there's actually three. Uh, is the typewriter, it, when it's first shown, is white. Right. And then later on in the film, it gets darker and darker and darker. And I believe that's intentional as well. And it's a nod to Jack having the writer's block that they mentioned before, where he's not really writing much of anything, to where when he is shown writing, it's later revealed what he is writing, and what he's writing is craziness. And when Shelley Duvall's character comes upon that stack of paper, neatly stacked, but just the same phrase written over and over again, hundreds and hundreds of pages, she realizes that Jack's no longer there. He's nutso. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that a big was, reveal in the movie. Yeah, this is like a, <clears throat> you have the maze outside. You have the maze inside. It goes back to the Greek myth of uh, in Crete with the Minotaur and everything. And part of a maze is at least the perception that it seems to be constantly changing on you. It's not necessarily the case, but it seems to be because you keep coming up to a dead end and you go back and you're like, wait a minute, did I see this before? Did I pass through here? Or did I not pass through here before? Um, and in the case of toward the end of the movie, in the Greek uh, myth, I think it was Theseus was the hero who killed the Minotaur. He was able to get out of the um, maze because he had a ball of yarn. And he, when he went into the maze, he killed the Minotaur on his way out. He was able to follow the yarn back out of the maze. Whereas in the, this movie, um, Danny was able to use his footprints in the snow. Um, that wasn't so much shifting around, although the landscape of the the details of the landscape shifted because at the beginning of the movie it was dry, and at the end of the movie it was it was a blizzard. But inside, it's kind of like the walls are constantly shifting and moving, and the floor is constantly shifting and moving to the point where you, you just feel like you're in a maze that you can't get out of. And I think it goes a little bit back to the Greek mythology that I know Kubrick, um, it was talked about in the, the, the documentary, Kubrick was a fan of... Wasn't the Minotaur person? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, yes. Well, that's, no. And he looks, that one scene where Jack is looking out the window when they're out in the maze, he looks like he has like, he could have two horns on his forehead kind of a, he, uh, he has that look about him, you know? So. Wasn't the Minotaur analogy used in the book as well? Or my misremembering. Oh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I apologize. I wish I could. Um, there are there are metaphors in the book, but I don't know about that one. Maybe I, I just can't no, remember there, either. There's the beehive in the book. That doesn't. There's the wasp nest. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And the, yeah. The, can we? I wanted to mention specifically how irritating Wendy is in the film, and I think that's. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's something that Stephen King was a little irritated with because she's not an idiot in the book. She she's a she's a relatively you know she has faculties, uh, but she's capable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and in the film, she's an idiot. She's annoying. She is vapid. She just kind of I don't know. She makes uh, patent ob- observations about things, and it's she's just, a wet noodle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's I. And uh, what is the point of that? What do you think the point is of that? You guys are picking on Robert's uh, celebrity crush here. Olive oil. How dare you? So, so my my wife described her as having what was it? She said beautiful skin stretched over ugly bones. Mm, wow! Wow! How dare you? My wife is the expert because she's a she's a, the beauty the beauty master. She does that shit for a living. So at least for now, she does. But mm-hmm. yeah. Watch Popeye. Tell me she's not good looking. <laughs> she she looks- there's a there's a reason that she looks a little bit different in this movie, and that is because Kubrick shot this with an 18 millimeter lens, which tends to distort and uh, enlarge extremities. Huh. And she also didn't wear, like, wear a ton of makeup, and she's always tired and getting woken up in the middle of the night. Right. I'm not going to sit here and defend how someone looks on a movie. It's, she's not meant to be like a beauty star in this movie, but in life she was a woman. But she, well, in the movie too, she was made to look very pale. I know you could tell they put makeup on her, and some scenes where she's very, very ill-looking, very white, and she has very heavy dark circles under her eyes and everything. So, so the makeup that they used on her didn't didn't help. It's interesting yeah. that you talk about her being like you know vapid and annoying. I I didn't see that at all. Maybe I was just looking at it through my rose-colored glasses, my Shelley Duvall rose-colored glasses, but. Uh, I thought she was fantastic. Every time she was on screen, I liked her. Well, maybe I'm just a misogynist pig, but she's, <laughs> well, that's true. she's a fucking... <laughs> I wrote in my notes, I wrote like, every single time she said something stupid and obvious. It's like so many times. <laughs> that's all your notes are? They're all stupid and obvious? Essentially, yes. You, you privileged white male. What's the matter with you? I know um, I'm assuming your gender, but you know. I, I have an olivey skin tone. With that... With that. <laughs> I tell people I'm khaki. They're like, what are you talking about? You're white. I'm like, look at this t-shirt that I'm wearing. That's white. Look at my khaki pants. They're khaki. I'm khaki. Don't, don't assume my pigment, you know? You identify as khaki. I identify as khaki. <laughs> so when are, are we going to confront the elephant in the room, which is the theory that Jack Nicholson or that Jack was raping Danny? Is this an inappropriate time to tackle that point? Well, it's not, yeah, it's not as inappropriate as the orgy scene in it. So go right ahead. Yeah, I didn't get that at all. So whatever evidence you can bring forth to support that argument, I want to hear it. Okay. So my first bit of evidence here, it's, um, it's a little stretching here, but I think that the, the mouth wiping, and this is coincidental with the novel, but I think that the mouth wiping with Jack, when you when you take the film and the novel in tandem with each other, I think it, it signifies an oral fixation to get Freudian. And um, I don't know, there's that scene where he awkwardly holds him, and they're um, in in the bed. And then when they're first touring the the bedroom itself, the first thing he does is look and judge where Danny's bed is in relation to the marital bed and i think there's other situations where jack leers at the in the beginning of the film jack leers at the the women who are working in the hotel and uh, i'm just trying to think of everything to throw at you are there other other signifiers that i'm missing yeah, yeah i hope so uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
he, yeah, there is that one awkward, weird scene where Danny comes in and he's like, Dad, you'd never hurt me or Mommy, would you? And he's like, who told you that? Did Mommy say that? I would never. Yeah. <laughs> that plays yeah, a big a role in the novel. Say what? Yeah. That plays a big role in the novel where it's um, like it, it played out in the, in the, the movie when um, Danny comes out of room 237 and he's sucking his thumb because it's a phallic symbol for Jack. No, but um, he's sucking his thumb and she, Wendy runs over and she's like, Jack, you did this to him because who else is in the hotel who would do it to him? And right. um, I, th- I mean, it, it comes out a little bit more because when he goes and he's in the, the bar and he's talking to the bartender and he's like, why does that bitch think I would do that to my own son? I would never touch a hair in his head. But in the it, it plays out a little. But in the book, it's much more intense and it's much more divisive and chasmic than anything that gets portrayed in the movie. It it plays right from the beginning of the novel, where um, the arm thing, where it's it's just mentioned at the very beginning of the movie, that just keeps coming up again and again and again and again in the book. Um, so this whole abusive yeah, father, yeah, plays it plays on a whole new level in the book. And I don't know if that I know with Stephen King, the whole he had the alcohol, the alcoholism and the drug use, but. Was he also Patrick? Was he also considered an abusive father? Did he? Has, have you ever come across anything about that? Not Stephen King himself. Um, I haven't come no? across. Okay. Maybe maybe it was his own horror with himself being a dysfunctional parent, or his father. Yeah, or, maybe. Yeah. But uh, oh, as as further evidence, the cornerstone of this theory, I think, has to do with the the Tony who lives in uh, Danny's mouth. And so essentially Tony is the little boy that lives in Danny's mouth. And then when he gets scared, he goes down into Danny's stomach, which is stomach. Ah. Is him swallowing. That's it. You've convinced me. <laughs> See? So, not, not to be, uh, I don't know. I said the word wow. that a first on the actual anarchy podcast. Wow. That might be the first appearance of the word come. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can anybody else corroborate this theory? I mean, who put forth this theory? This is this seems like a lot of really grasping at straws here. This is one of the major theories of the film, I think. Would I be correct in saying that? It is a theory. I've come across the theory before, but and you pointed out some scenes, but I think they're just it's just stretching a bit too much. But yeah, well, I mean, what would that add to the add to it? I mean, if you're coming up with a theory, does that just add another layer to it? Or, I mean, do you need this sort of a thing to be happening? Not necessarily. I'm not really sure. Yeah. I'm not wedded to it. Uh, I think it's intriguing, um, but it's it's an interesting theory. I think there's so, I think there's more evidence um, than I am able to present right now, um, but I think it, yeah. it definitely is food for thought, if anything. Uh, but I'm mm-hmm. not wedded, yeah. Okay, well, this is... Uh, let me jump ahead to the very end, and we can... This is not an end of the show. I'm just saying this is popping into my head and I can't not ask this question to my two uh, shining experts here, or even my third here. At the very end of the movie, we are treated, treated to an image of Jack of a photograph from 1921 of Jack at like a new year's Eve party or something like that. And he's in the, in this black and white image. What is the audience supposed to think about that? What is the takeaway for the audience? Patrick, go. Well, I think that it's just that uh, Jack is part of the hotel now. Um, so he has been killed, and now he is a ghost, and now he is ghostly appearing in a photograph? Yeah, he's been subsumed by the hotel. Because the hotel transcends space and time, I think, if you will. <laughs> oh, here's a Stephen King thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, so the hotel it's, it's trans- takes place in a separate dimension. Yeah, okay. like I mean, all right. If you if you take what Allman says, he says, "Well, you've always been the caretaker here, Mister Torrance." Right. Um, it is a subtle right, Doc, throw. It's a subtle throw to the book. Um, in the book, this this is a recurring theme, where it's sometimes it's mildly hinted and sometimes it's strongly hit, hinted that. Um, and he says it in the movie too. He's like, "I've been here before. I feel like deja vu. I feel like this is my." This is my place here. I, I, I'm coming home, so to speak. And it's almost as if he's reincarnated because you figure 1921, it, let's say he could have died at any point along the way, 1922, 1923, 1921. And then he could have been born again and, you know, a few years later and then aged to the point where he is. And then he winds up going back to the hotel again. Um, I think Stephen King strongly alludes to the reincarnation factor um where he was an actor in the hotel previously and i guess he dies or something and then he comes back and he just gets drawn like his fate he just can't get out of it he can't get away from the hotel no matter how far away he goes because in the book he's he's in maine he starts off in maine um in the same general area as Derry, where it took place in the same universe and castle rock and all those towns but yeah he gets drawn back to that hotel i think it's just reliving his life again a tragic life and it's just playing out again. It's, it can be uh, like, um, you know, you're um, symbolic of you can't, you can't get away from your fate. You always get drawn back. Um, the struggle is real and some people will never overcome that struggle. It's like that, uh, here we go, Greek mythology and that guy who was in hell and he would push the boulder up the mountain and he would get almost to the top and then something would happen and the, the boulder would get all the way down to the bottom and you have to start rolling the boulder up the hill again. Kind of like that. Okay. Well, those are just some good answers. Um, Thanks. <laughs> it seemed like a weird thing when I saw it and I figured, yeah, there's a couple different ways to read into it, but uh, I like both of those answers. Good. What's the, what, oh, what's the scene that we've ignored, Patrick? I'm sure we've been blowing past all kinds of different scenes you want to talk about. Oh, I... I kind of I wanted to return a little bit to the whole Wendy being an idiot thing because I I don't say it at the detriment of Wendy because and I want to when I was writing the notes I wanted to make this distinction that there's someone out there for everyone and the fact that Wendy says like super obvious shit all the time could be irritating to some but I think the very point of that is very illustrative of the fact that um that jack is an abusive figure and he's a narcissist i think he is a commanding controlling type he is a, a classic abuse situation tech uh just just patently that he he needs to be this sort of godlike figure and he needs to have all the answers and that wendy always needs to look up to him and he has to be the one to be the man and deal with shit and um he needs this because he's insecure about himself and and this this kind of gets into the book too but the jack is a character is a character of fucking failure i mean he's failed at everything that he's done and this is his last chance to really resurrect his creative side and um i i i really like the fact that wendy was this vapid kind of idiot because it really sh- it really showed and illustrated how jack's character and showed more about him and showed the fact that he's insecure and he needs to c- control someone, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? Makes sense to me. Yeah. For me. <laughs> I, I have just I've been studying this in my domestic violence class in law school. 
And it's, is that what this is all about? Jeez. <laughs> uh, they they really get inside your fucking head with this shit. Um, but it's me and one other man and about I don't know fourteen women in the profession. Oh, no. So I've been bit with a feminist bug, but I, I think <laughs> that coercive controlling relationship exists here. And there were so many red flags, especially through the class, that kind of jumped out at me. Um, but that's not a major, I guess it's not a major theme in the film or the book. Oh, it is. Yeah. But Among many others. Yeah. So much to, to really pick apart. Patrick, what do you think of the uh, Grady scene in the bathroom? Oh, with the whole um, racist element? <laughs> yeah. I, I hate to say, quote, the N-word. I really, it's like saying Lord, or he who shall not be named for Lord Voldemort. So uh-huh. I um, I don't, that puzzled me. The whole, the, the white supremacist element to that. Uh, what, what do you, I mean, it plays into the whole Native American genocide thing. Um, but other than that, just, did it, did it appear in the novel? I don't remember. That not element. really. Uh-uh. Yeah. Nope. Puzzles me that. It was just kind of, kind of tossed in. It looks, it seems like it's tossed in. Again, it's Kubrick. What seems to be just flagrant isn't necessarily so. But, um, yeah, just, uh, and that whole scene with, uh, like you said, Grady telling him, oh, you've always been the, the caretaker here. And, yeah. you know, getting back to that whole abusive thing, you've got to teach them a lesson kind of thing. You know, how dare he use his uh, abilities to, you know, over, you know, say, you know, you're the fatherly figure. And who is Danny or anybody else to override what you have to say and everything? Well, now, now that you mention it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense because he, the hotel is playing on his insecurity when it comes to his family because he has not been able to accomplish anything. And I think in a lot of ways he sees his family as getting in the way of that as he blames all of his failure on the fact that he decided to create this family. And mm-hmm. yeah. And, and so the hotel knows this because the hotel knows his inner secrets and knows just how to play him so that he'll do their bidding or the hotel's bidding or, you know, pick your poison. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Could we, could we get a, could, could we get a motivation for the hotel at all? Is there, is there like a single monolithic desire of the hotel or is it like a variety of different spirits and whatevers that all have various malicious ideas or i think it's the same as the creature and it it's just uh i don't know a manifestation of the evil in, in people speaking of which um remember the scene when jack is kissing the the woman in room 237 and he looks in the mirror and all of a sudden he's he's horrified because she's old I don't know if you remember the, if you guys remember the scene in the TV series with Tim Curry when John Ritter's character is kissing uh, Beverly, or he thinks yeah. he's kissing Beverly, yeah. and then he looks in the mirror and he sees Pennywise's clown costume, and John Ritter gets horrified. It was almost exactly the like I it was just it hit me immediately and it was overwhelming. I was like, that's exactly the same thing. The parallels are striking. Yeah. And it was the shining yeah. of the first, right? Before the TV. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And Dick Halloran in this movie and in the book, um, his father was uh, escaped it at the black spot, which was uh, a hangout for um the blacks in Derry. So everything's kind of all connected to the to the King universe in various ways. The shining is one of those it's called The Shining in, in this book, and it's called The Shining in a few other books, but um, that psychic power exists in a lot of other 
um, books, but just goes under different names. Like the book that I actually like of Stephen King's that doesn't get much attention is uh, Desperation, and it takes it was actually made into a movie, not a very good movie, and it takes place in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, and it has a kid, and the kid can see things, and he can he and he's going up against some kind of mal- malevolent. I don't know if you would call it a demon, but something akin to it. And it's, again, a Native American thing. The town was built on like a Native American graveyard or near it or something like that. And they disturbed the spiritual spirituality of the area. It's almost like the Dakota Pipeline, you know? <laughs> Just King made it up before the Dakota Pipeline situation ever happened. It's like, come on, you know? So easy. But, yeah, this movie was great. And the books, the book was, the book was good, too. Patrick, did you like the book as much as the movie or... or like both for their own different reasons. Kind of oh, hell yeah. I love the book. I like them both for their, for different reasons, but yeah. it, the, I don't know. The story speaks to me for some reason. Um, I think the, the, the best, my favorite analogy, and I was glad it made it into the movie was the mentioning of the, um, the snowbound wagon company, the Donner party. Uh-huh. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, yeah. And that's talked about the book. Um, actually, the book expands and fleshes things out a little bit because they go into they're not. See, the thing with the movie is they're they're they have the cabin fever syndrome. They're stuck there. There's nothing they can. There's nowhere for them to go. But in the book, there's a town nearby called Sidewinder, and they go for a few trips down to Sidewinder. And actually, Danny has an episode, an epileptic episode, uh, the whole with the whole Tony thing, and they wind up taking him to a doctor in Sidewinder. So um, in the book. It's it's not so much cabin fever. It's just the hotel coming to possess Jack's character. If that makes sense. So it's it's the movie is much more narrowly focused and much more um, suffocating than the book is because in the book they can actually get out and flex a little bit and walk around the mountain and drive down to town and all that other jazz where they can't do that in the book. But then again, you have to somehow translate the. The, the book into a, into a film format, which we've discussed before on the other episode that I was a part of. And, you know, in order to do that, you have to cut a lot of fat off the, the bone kind of a thing, which is a shame because it really does flesh things out. <clears throat> the, the woman in room 237, she gets fleshed out in the book. And in the book, it's room 217, not room 237. Yeah, which goes into the moon conspiracy, the moon landing conspiracy. Yeah, the moon conspiracy. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, but I agree with the book. Um, I if there's one thing that I would wish for the the film is that there was an extended edition like the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, that would be really sweet. Kubrick <laughs> have a an extra hour. <laughs> I I was gonna say twelve hours, but yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. What was that? I guess it does it does drag on even now. So maybe maybe an extra two or three. But yeah, just to to really flesh it out, I suppose. But yeah, do we do we want to get into the moon landing shit? <laughs> I mean, that's in the documentary two three seven. So yeah, yeah I found let's most get of into documentary two thirty seven. <laughs> I found most of that Here to be uh, pretty pretty ridiculous. Uh, there were a few interesting things brought in there, but I, I feel like it was like the 80-20 or 80% of it was kind of garbage. Like the one guy's thing about it being the moon landing was, well, room and moon are the only two words you can build with those letters. Well, you can also build yeah, moron. Moron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I don't know. He was wearing the Apollo sweatshirt and then he emerged from a landing pad where there were toy trucks and shit. And then 
Uh, but but the most thing, the the biggest thing is that he changed the room from 217 to 237, and 237,000 is the number of miles away, right? That the moon is on average from the Earth, 237,000 or 237 million, something like that. Yeah, something yeah. like that. I pretty compelling, guys. So Patrick, are you are you definitely then saying, or are you just kind of like pointing to it and going, eh, there's something to it? Oh, I, I'm no, I I'm not. I'm saying, oh, there's something to it, maybe. I mean, there. Then then you get into the whole Kubrick question, and I see you typing something in, Daniel. Can you bring up the YouTube of the Corbett Report? The uh, Corbett Report. It's the um, the Kubrick question. Yeah, maybe I'll send you a link. Because I think it's fun to speculate. I, yeah. I definitely think it's fun to speculate, and maybe he was a part of it, maybe he wasn't. But what I mostly took away from Room 237 was, wow, the mentally ill can really get into a movie. <laughs> and they can really... <laughs> because a lot of those theories, there was not a lot there. Yeah. It was mostly people going, talking some weird shit. And I'm like, okay, I don't know why this is in a documentary, but all right. Yeah, so I... This, this is my theory, and this gets into Kubrick himself, but my, my theory, and I think what is presented by James Corbett, is that it is possible that the moon landing was faked because they were live broadcasting the moon landing, and if something went wrong, it would look really, really, really bad for, for NASA and for the U.S. government, and so they faked moon landing footage to look tough in front of the world. Um, Not saying that they didn't actually go to the moon, yeah. just that they faked some footage to make sure it looked good. Yeah, perhaps. I have nothing invested in this question. I don't really care either way. I think it's fun to speculate, but yeah. There's yeah, no I, I, well, you're dealing with lying liars who don't care about lying, so I, I don't put anything past them. Uh, I think it's a fun thing to speculate. I don't have a whole lot of evidence one way or the other. I've seen some some uh you know visual evidence photographs video evidence of some of the moon landing footage that looks kind of suspect but at the end of the day i mean if i could get people to believe that taxation is theft i'd be happy i don't need to convince them that the moon landing was fake i mean you know it's not really i don't have a whole lot invested like you said it's it's fun it's a fun brain teaser or or you know intellectual exercise i guess if you could call it that even (laughs) Um, but no, that I would encourage listeners to check out that uh, Corbett Report episode, the Kubrick question. It's a pretty good one. There's no conclusive, you know, smoking gun, like I said. But mm-hmm. yeah. I got to say, Patrick, I'm a little disappointed that it's his episode 233. He should have shelved it for four more episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Corbett, yeah. He's given me some love at the Liberty Weekly podcast. So, pretty cool. Very nice. Yeah. He's uh, in Japan, is that right? Is that where he's from? Yeah. That's where he lives. Where he lives, he's Canadian. I think from Calgary, or he went to undergrad in Calgary. But, yeah. Well, hey guys, not that we're totally done talking about this movie, but we might as well start heading towards home just because it's so late for everyone. Yeah. And I feel like this has been one of our more rambling podcasts, but uh, I, I, I do want to say that this is one of those movies that I think does bear watching again and again. You do pick up more out of it. And the fact that there is so much ambiguity that people can analyze it even 20, 30 years later and still not understand everything that's going on into it or 
pick up all of the things that, that Kubrick may have been trying to say, if anything at all, is a testament to its longevity and the fact that it can spark so many questions. It becomes very relevant in cinematography, you know, and in, in cinematic history. And so, Robert, I would encourage you to, to watch this again, not anytime soon, because no. we, we have so many episodes to do in the next week or so. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll be sharing that with you uh, shortly. Um, but I did want right. to uh, ask you two guys who have read the book and seen the movie, do you feel that Kubrick putting the color change in the Volkswagen is significant and when Halloran's driving back up to the Overlook, they show the red um, Volkswagen under the semi in that wreck. And of course, in the book, uh, the the car is red, but Kubrick changed it to yellow for the film and then showed the red one under the truck in the accident. Was that a fuck you to King? Well, that was what was said in the, in the 237 documentary. Sure seemed to be. I mean, I, all I know is what that was said. I mean, it seemed to be that that was the case. I mean, and we heard that King hated this version and... Kubrick was trying to say that he had his own version. It makes sense to me. I mean, I don't know. It, it makes sense to me, but I never picked up on it until watching the documentary. And then I went, eh, yeah, I guess. But I don't know if somebody, like, I don't know if King would pick up on that necessarily, unless somebody pointed out to him, you know. Because it's a blurry scene. There's a lot it's, There's a lot going on. Um, it's, in the, it's the middle of the night. There's flashlight beams going everywhere. There's a raging snowstorm. So it, it's it's subtle. Obviously, it's subtle. I would think Stanley Kubrick would want to make it more direct, but who knows? That would have been if I would I would have been him. I would have made it more direct like that. I mean, I think I think it makes sense. Um, I actually didn't even really know about this until you just mentioned it now. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that it, it would make sense if Kubrick was like "fuck you" to Stephen King because I do not view as Stephen I do not view Stephen King as being a literary figure in the literature sense. I think that he's a very, very good popular novelist, but I don't think that he's a profound literary talent. And if Kubrick is God's gift to man when it comes to cinematography, and if he's high art, then it makes sense to me him being like, fuck you. So mm-hmm. what, what do you, what do you think about that doc? You know, being, a I Stephen completely King. agree. Uh, Stephen King. Well, there's a genre of fiction called literary fiction. And you get, that's from where you have more erudition, you have more depth. Think Joseph Conrad, think, think Dostoevsky, think, uh, you know, even uh, uh, Mitchell from Cloud Atlas. That's, that's some pretty in-depth stuff. And King, King is more of a coots. He's more of a wee child. He's more of a, a horror version of, of Nora Roberts. He can spin a good yarn and, you know, he can make themes, but it's nothing profound necessarily. It's just taking something that's, an old trope and just putting a different twist or a different nuance on it. Pretty much. I mean, if you're looking for intensity, you got it. If you're looking for a few frights, you've got that. But, um, yeah, one of the powerful things about science fiction, the horror, the more fantasy, the more imaginative genres is that you can tell some profound messages through them. C.S. Lewis did it. Tolkien did it with Lord of the Rings. You can, you can, you know, George Lucas did it with the star Wars franchise. You can make some powerful, powerful, um, lessons, you can make some powerful notes known, but King doesn't do that, and uh, he's good for a quick read, and like I read Sleeping Beauties recently, it's his most recent book it just came out a month ago and um, it was fun to read, but it didn't, it's nothing that will stick with me so I'm like, oh my god, you know the stuff I got out of this book has changed my life or, or anything like that So, and um, I think 
Kubrick wanted to show how intensely different he is from King. For example, King is very much the book deals with fire, the boiler exploding, the overlook going up in flames, whereas Kubrick decided to go the opposite and he went with cold. He went with Jack freezing to death. He went with the, you know, the maze and everything. And, you know, completely different. And I think that was another chop on the block for, for Kubrick and uh, King to go at it. Yeah, so that's my two cents. So in the book, then Jack doesn't actually kill anybody? Or does he? He kills himself. That's it? <laughs> that's it. Yeah, um, I don't think he kills anybody else. No. no, That's how much of a loser he is in the book. He's really like a loser. He really is. There's really nothing, as Patrick pointed out, there's really nothing that he succeeds in doing in life, except having a kid, but how difficult is that? You know? I mean, really. I mean, he's just, so the hotel, in all its wisdom, picked a loser. <laughs> okay. Pretty much. He was he, he was easy. Easy pickings. You know? He really was. Yep. Yeah. Okay. But in the, in the book, doesn't he kill himself as a sacrifice for, for Wendy and Danny? I can't remember. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. But, you know. For your wife and kids, and you're already pretty much too far gone to have to ever come back, and you know it. It's like you might as well. Yeah. I hear Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep is the the the, the, the sequel to The Shining, uh, the book. What? And I heard that really. I haven't read the book. I have it here at the house, but I haven't read it. I don't know if you read it, Patrick, but I heard it was bombed. It was considered a really bad book. And it's uh, Danny, like 20 years in the future or something like that. And he's a he's just still dealing with the PTSD of the overlook. Oh. Yeah, I have read it actually. And Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so I it was a few Christmases ago that I got it, like right when it came out, but so Danny is fucked up. Danny is just as fucked up as Jack is. And it's it it's sad because Danny's such a likable character in the first mm-hmm. and my I guess the the reason why I semi didn't like it is because it is so much more supernatural than mm. The Shining was. And essentially it deals with a band of psychic people who go around collecting other psychics or something. And it was just so freaking weird. It was so, so <laughs> off the wall weird that I just, yeah, it was hard to, I mean, I would read it. It's worth a read, but, uh-huh. but I mean, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. So, mm. all right. So the elevators of blood uh, early on when they're doing the tour of the hotel, Ullman opens the door manually. So they're not automatic doors. And Kubrick shows the blood imagery going out of the elevators and into the hallway multiple times throughout the film. And it's always corresponding with um, when there's like a premonition of something violent about to occur or when violence is occurring. And in one of the videos put together by collativelearning.com, which is a website of film analysis, and they, in 2008, did a very in-depth analysis of The Shining, he mentions that it appears that there's an object that comes out of the elevator and is laying on the floor that the blood falling onto it falls around. So it's a dimensional object. And he ventures to guess that it's perhaps a body that is what had opened the elevator and fell out with the blood and the blood the blood spills over it. And you can only see it for like a split second when the elevator door, uh, after it's opened a bit and it starts flowing out. So I don't know if you guys notice anything like that, but it's kind of an interesting, interesting thing because he reshot that scene dozens of times to get it to, to be just right. Oh. Wow. Well, didn't even cross my mind. Oh, that's cool. I'll be checking that out. 
I thought you were going to say something like all that blood. I thought it was, you know, it's symbolic of a period or something like that. You know? Menstrual cycle. <laughs> Not going to lie, I've thought that before. <laughs> and I think at one point I counted, I, I don't know how much, many times it is now, but it's like eight times that that, that particular scene plays in the movie. It's, it's a lot, you know, but there's not that much blood shed in the movie. You have Dick Holler and it gets, you know, axed in the heart. And um, there's the guy, the one party goer whose head is cracked open, like with an ax or something, but there's really not a lot of blood there. Um, I don't know that there's really nothing. Um, it's like, yeah, here you go. Do you guys see it right here? Yeah, the tsunami of blood versus not so much blood in the movie. Wait, wait, wait. Oh. I see it. There's something there. Huh. Could that just be a piece of furniture or something? Can you back up a little bit? Wait, so you were saying that there's someone in the elevator that opens it manually. Yeah, you see, when this is first open, there's nothing there, but now you can see yeah. an object, right? There's a reflection. There's a dimensional object reflecting light right here. Huh. I'll have to look on my HDTV. And go back and forth. Yeah, let me see if I can find a better one. What about that one right there on the right? Right above where, right there. That one looks, I can see something right, keep it right right there. Yeah. But I don't know if that's a body per se. Yeah, I'm trying to find a GIF that is playing it. You can kind of see the reflection here. Uh This is our bonus content for everyone. Kathleen Turner Overdrive. (laughs) Boom! You're paying for this. Blood. Paying extra. What the hell is that Chinese chick doing? <laughs> what is that? How does that get in there? That's fine. You know, I'm going to try to find a YouTube of it. That might do yeah, it. Yeah, there's got to be something about it. So when you, Danny, when you said that uh, is it, it isn't what you expected the episode to be, is that a good thing, a bad thing, or a neutral thing? Uh, it's a little neutral. Um, I thought that we'd be more scene by scene like patrick tried to get us to go <laughs> uh-huh. but then we did not um oh there it is right there See it? oh yeah look at that huh. i'll make it even bigger all right so nothing there nothing there nothing there something and there. now something yeah. there yeah huh. it looked like hands or something huh. like that one was falling down and then plopped their appendages down on the floor or something okay, so i think this is going to just play all four of them. oh here we go Look at this. It's a much, it's a close up. So nothing there, nothing there. Blood pouring out, and something there. I don't get that. If you're gonna do put something in a movie, why make it so incredibly subtle and so incredibly difficult to see? I think it yes. goes in line with the imperceptibleness. It's the subconscious. Mm. You're not supposed to be aware of it, but it's supposed to make you unease, have unease. Nice big cock. <laughs> Does that make you uneasy, Robert? When you're around me, make you uncomfortable? Yeah. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna place this video in the um, show notes page because this shows this closer and closer and slower and slower. See now, now you guys see something there? Yeah. Well, I'm not seeing what you guys are seeing, but I do want to thank you guys for all the prep you did for this episode, and you obviously brought a lot. So you made it a lot better than it was, would have been otherwise. So appreciate that. Well, you guys have a top-notch show, so i got to do some top-notch research beforehand. <laughs> top-notch, baby. Top you heard notch. it. Listen, top-notch. Top notch. So what are, what are we going to do, the black and gold rating? I'd give it a black yeah. and gold. <laughs> to our final ratings, final summation and ratings. Yeah, yeah. Patrick, you're giving the black and gold. Okay. You recommend this for who? Um, How old of a child needs to be before they watch it? Um, 
13 or 14, I would say. Yeah. Okay. In your estimation. All right. Huh. I was going to say 10 or 12. Maybe yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a little too optimistic, maybe. <laughs> I think a lot of it would go over their head. Um, yeah. Well, it's one of those things where you, you, you view it one way as a kid and you view it another way when you're an adult. Yeah, that's very true. Because you got a young kid in the, the story, they would they would find um, a connection with him, so to speak. But it is intense for a little kid, too. So. He's the most likable character, I think, Danny is. Or, ah, uh, well, never mind. I like him. He's likable. Yeah, well, he is super likable, but I also liked uh, Dick Halloran in the film, at least. He was my favorite character. In the film, I think they completely, I know we're doing the end ratings and everything, but I just felt bad for his character. Like, he did all that. He flew across the country. He got the snow cat. He did all this stuff to get there. And he walks in like two minutes later. Hello? Damn, dead. <laughs> you know, I'm like, come on. Give the guy a little more credit. If anything, he detracted Jack from actually finding Danny. So, yeah. He did his job then? I don't know. Well, and he delivered a working functional snowcat to them okay. because Jack had taken measures to make sure they couldn't leave or contact outside help. Yeah, that's true, too. So Danny had to use his, his tele- telepathic power to call for help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would give this a black and gold. I give the book a black and gold, too. And how old would you recommend get to be before you watch this movie? I was going to say, I guess I'd say about 12. All right. Um, you could be 12 to read. Do you guys think this is really scary? <sighs> Not scary per se. Unsettling. Yes, unsettling. Um, gives you that weird taste in your mouth kind of thing, but not necessarily. Um, Cujo is scary, okay? Um, Pet Cemetery is scary. This is just unsettling. It makes you uncomfortable. Dreadful. Dread. Yeah, intense, psychologically. But that psychological aspect would kind of go over a kid's head. But the visuals are great. The visuals are very almost cartoonish for a kid, you know, who grew up on like Looney Tunes and stuff. Those should be right up their alley. Also, maybe I grew up on uh, horror movies, so I thought this was really, really tame by comparison. And since I didn't have the tension that you guys felt, that yeah, I would say this is a big old nothing burger (laughs) of a movie. So I'm all black and red on this one, baby. The movie that scared the hell out of me when I was a kid was uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, man. Uh, great was, movie. Oh, it's that so wonderful. Holds up. Yes. 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 And it's, it's scary. Yes. Oh, marvelous. Fantastic. Super underrated. Yep. Yes. I don't understand why. It's. I think it's by far better than... And it's, I never... I will. It's not never. It's very rare for me to say this, but it's much better than the original, in my opinion. It's just... Wow. The special effects were just mind-boggling awesome you know yeah they still hold up all practical yeah really really good stuff and that whole tension i mean the premise itself is fantastic i mean the the idea that you know who's infected who isn't the whole tension of that i mean that's the that's the real scary part for me not the 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 monster stuff even though the monster stuff i suppose if you're you know a younger person that you'd be more frightened about that kind of thing but the way that it holds up is through the tension of the knowing and not knowing and the yeah real really good stuff Mm. Daniel. Well, Robert, I'm going to go with the super black and gold. This is actually one of my favorite movies of all time. This is a movie that my wife and I have traditionally watched right around this time of year for years. And uh, it still puts chills in our spines, you know, and even though we've seen it multiple times, it still has that effect, that unnervingness to it. It still has that creepy factor. And I think that that is intentional and it is attributed to the 
genius that Kubrick had. And uh, uh, one of the lines that we often say to each other is, darling, light of my life. Yeah. Uh, pretty often to each other. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, man, I, I think that this is, is, I've said this four times now, but this is a movie that I think bears watching again and again to get more and more of it. And it becomes an acquired taste and you start uh, really appreciating it for what it is. Uh, so I thought, Robert, that this would be one of those movies that would fulfill what you often talk about wanting in a movie. And that is that tension and that buildup and that genuine fear for the characters, even though you kind of already know the general outline of what's going to happen. You know, that Jack's going to go crazy. You know, he's going to try to kill his kids. They actually um, talk about that early in the, in the film, you know, like this is what happened to the previous person who was here. This is obviously going to happen to the next guy. Um, but to okay, be able to still have that okay. simple part of that story and still like telegraph it to you so early on, and still make it have tension, still make it have uh, this unexplained like terror in that is is pretty pretty amazing to me. So super black and gold for me. But go ahead with your question. Okay, okay. You're right about one thing. You absolutely have to like the characters and care about them in order for there to be tension and to give a shit about what's going to happen to them. So do me a favor and describe for me Jack's character. <laughs> are you addressing all of us or just uh, Danny? I'm asking Daniel, but if anyone wants to jump yeah. in and tell me all about Jack's character, go for it. Daniel, watch you, you we'll back you up. <laughs> go ahead, Daniel, we'll back you up. Go ahead. Well, he's an angry, frustrated alcoholic with a, a history of abuse who's a struggling writer, and uh, he's been fired what a, from... What a, I, I can really get behind that. <laughs> And well, I yeah, really but care about that character. you're not supposed to be on his team. You're supposed to see him as somebody who's already on the edge who just needs a little nudge, and the hotel provides that. Okay, so who am I supposed to be fearing for? Well, Danny. The annoying mother or the nothing burger of a kid? I thought you said the mother was super hot, super smoking. She is super hot, but she wasn't much of a I mean, okay, describe the character of the person I'm supposed to care about. Well, Danny, mother? because he's an innocent Okay, Danny, give me his character. He's an innocent child who okay. is uh, got you know imaginary friends because he has no real life friends. Um, yeah. In making the film, he was told it was a drama film. If that means anything, uh, he didn't know it was a horror film, and he actually invented what that was. He invented the uh, finger uh, talking version of Tony. I thought that was great. I loved I loved the little finger talking. I thought that was the perfect thing that a kid would do. I loved that part. I thought the little kid was a good actor, but none of the the, the characters ever really did much that gave me, oh man, I really like this character. I hope nothing bad happens to them. Maybe I'm just super cynical and whatever, but I've seen movies where a talented writer and a talented director will give me a character and in five minutes, maybe less, I'll go, I like that guy. I care about him. I don't want anything bad to happen to him. And that never happened for me in this movie. And I can't necessarily put my finger on any one scene that was bad or wrong. I just don't think that Kubrick, and I can't tell you about King because I didn't read the book. Maybe the book did a better job. I'm sure it did. Had way more time to develop these characters. But I, I was left with generic American family goes into the hotel. Bad stuff happens. The end. It, I I was never like, oh, you know Jack Torrance? Oh, yeah, such a great character. Oh, amazing. Remember that scene when he did the one thing? Oh, yeah. Or, you know, any any iconic type thing that really gave me a sense of who this person is and why I should give a shit about him. And 
Well, uh, maybe was... I'm just being super negative about the movie. I mean, there are all kinds of iconic scenes in the movie where he's like, here's Johnny and doing the things and you send me gifts of him like knocking on the door. And yeah, those are very iconic, but that doesn't tell me about his character and why I should give a shit about him. Well, I think like with Jack, for example, I think Kubrick tried to draw you in one sense to trying to portray him as a tragic character, but at the same time, um, show him as a character that you can't have any sympathy for. Um, Cause there's some scenes where like, for example, he, he was shouting at the key typewriter when he was having the nightmare about chopping Danny and his wife up. And you, you feel bad for him in that sense. But then there's other, other scenes like, for example, he gives into his lost room 237 or um, he's just batshit crazy um, with the axe and everything. You're like, well, how could I feel tragic for this guy? He, he never really, was that he never had that sense for me to be to, to, to think of him in a tragic sense, but you don't necessarily have to have likable characters in um, a story in order to be a good story. But I see what you're saying because that's the tendency. That's what we that's what we want. We want a hero. We want um, some savior. We want somebody who is that moral bulwark that you can rely on through, or a standard of some kind that you can rely on through the story to juxtapose all the other crappy characters. Um, and I think the only thing that you can, you can look at in, in that sense is Danny's innocence as a young boy who doesn't really, he's trying to comprehend evil. And um, I think Dick Holleran's character is very likable. There's nothing, there's nothing um, that I, you could point a finger to or, and saying that Dick is an unlikable fellow. I mean, he does everything in his power to try to convince Danny to, you know, deal with his, his, emo- his um, abilities and to co- quell his, his anxiety. And he does everything in his power to get across the country to help him out. Um, and Wendy's character is Stanley Kubrick portrayed her as that wet noodle. And it's, it's sad and it's pitiful. So you, you have a, a, a pitiful wife, um, married to a, a guy who's in one sense tragic, but in the other sense, you, you can't feel any, any sympathy for him at all. Um, nothing goes right for him in life. And he allows that to overtake him, so to speak. Um, okay. Well, let me, let me jump there. Go ahead. Um, uh, here's just a thought. If I had been given in the beginning of the movie, some scenes where Jack and Wendy are shown to be just truly in love, truly care about each other. And then they go to this hotel and it rips them apart. And it goes from a very loving person to this very angry, hateful relationship or whatever. Then I could see getting just heart-wrenching, torn apart. Oh my God, this person that I love and I care about and all of a sudden is trying to kill me or whatever. Like the, the end of a relationship is like a, this massive emotional response. Everybody can relate to that. Everybody can relate to, oh my God, I'm in love with this person. And then now it's over and this person doesn't like me anymore and they hate me. Right. That is like <clears throat> the story of every broken relationship ever. And well, I think everybody can respond to that. And it would have given me, you know, way more sympathy for the characters. Because sure. at the beginning of this movie, they're like, well, I don't really like this person and you don't really like me and nobody really cares about anybody. And then, so if the characters don't care, then the audience doesn't give a shit and then they all die and who cares? Well, then That's the my response to it all. Read the book because that that kind of plays out the way you, you describe it in the book. And um, that's one of the major objections Stephen King had to the, the movie. He said, you know, he, he put a lot of passion to his characters. He put a lot of emotion, hence the fire metaphor. 
and he didn't like the Kubrick version in a large sense because he made them cold and stiff and unrelated. Well, not unrelatable, but um, you, you couldn't really sympathize with them because, as King put it, they started off on a bad foot and it just got worse from there. So I, I, I can see your point, too. It's completely valid and legitimate. You know, I'm 100 percent on board with Stephen King in that sense. Yeah, I was. I was otherwise, yeah, the, the hotel needs to be the antagonist. It needs to have done something. Because in this, it seems like this relationship is so bad to begin with that, I mean, a bad weekend, it, you know, somewhere in a, on a vacation could have ended it. <laughs> Not, uh-huh. It doesn't need to have to be some paranormal haunted hotel. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Patrick, what do you think about what I said? I was, I was, that was literally what I was going to say is that I, w- I would come down actually on Robert's side on this because I don't think, I don't see any real transformation of Jack's character because, and I, I, I don't think that it would have solved it by having them, by having everything be hunky dory before they get to the overlook. Mm-hmm. But I think that if they had just mentioned in the film Jack's father and how he didn't want to be like his father. And I think so simply you could have done that with one or two scenes. And if you could illustrate that, then you then you get the sense that, okay, well, Jack doesn't want to be an asshole. But and he thinks that by coming to the hotel he will, you know, fix things, but they go terribly wrong. And that's where you would get the whole, you know, empathy portion. Whereas yeah, right now, tragedy. Yeah, yeah. And whereas right now I think the only people that empathize with Jack are, you know, misogynistic assholes who think that their girlfriend <laughs> fucking idiot and, uh, I mean, that's I why mean, that's why i like jack so much huh yeah clearly <laughs> oh I, I was, yeah just because she i mean just to rail on wendy's character but she's a fucking empty flower pot man and there's people i mean there's people like that for everyone you know but not for jack jack wants to feel like the supreme being so yeah i was gonna say that there, I counted during the scene where Wendy goes into the maze with Danny. There's a, she, the entire time that they're in the maze, she asks close ended questions of Danny. Huh. It's super irritating. Like what? Remind me. Oh, I don't, oh, it's really cold out, isn't it? Or I wrote it, I wrote some down. Yeah, nearly everything that is said between them when they are in the maze is Danny answering a close-ended, obvious statement question. I didn't write any of them down verbatim, but it's like, oh, it's super nice to be out here, or or something vapid and stupid. It goes to her cardboard hollowness, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So. Which she's not in the book. Yeah, she's not. Right. Yeah, that's kind of disappointing, because there's more to it. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that Kubrick had a take on a thing. I mean, it's, it's, like we've said, it's impossible to perfectly adapt a, a, a book. And I appreciate that he tried to do a thing. It didn't work out for me, but it sounds like it worked out for you guys. And it's definitely had a long cult following that's you know, stood the test of time. His work is widely regarded as some of the best ever. Um, so for what it's worth, I mean, it, this movie didn't work for me for the reasons I've mentioned. But, you know, don't let it dissuade you. Obviously, you know, this is three out of four dentists recommend (laughs) it's a lush film it's a very lush film at least cinema cinema what the hell am i trying to say cinematically with like i said with the the choreography and all that it's it's, kubrick just had a way with the camera even a wacky movie like dr strange film he just had a way with the camera lighting setting you know all that kind of stuff he's i would watch it just for that at least you know cool all right 
think. Uh, oh, go ahead, Daniel. Well, I was just going to say, why don't we uh, train wreck this thing home? Um, yeah. Unless anybody uh, has any big points that they've just been wanting to say. Oh, since this is uh, actual anarchy, we never really discussed anything political. Did you guys get anything? Any, do you see any political philo- philosophical themes? It's wrong mm-hmm. to kill people. Um, <laughs> I got the nap. There you go. The nap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, clean. I don't that was a line, sorry, from when they're going into the hedge maze. The loser keeps uh-huh. them clean. But that goes into the Native American thing or something. I don't know. What were you going to say, Robert? No, I, I was going to bring up the Native American thing, too. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, just treating the whole country like it's yours is obviously wrong. But it's not like that the Native Americans were super peaceful either. Right. I'm sure there's all kinds of plenty of murder and mayhem and horribleness to go around. But that's mm-hmm. not to excuse any of it. So. Right. Yeah, one of the things I, I was going to bring up earlier and I forgot to was that uh, when he's getting into that fight with Wendy about having obligations to his employer and have you heard of a contract? Oh, yes. You know what it means yes. to offer and accept and have an obligation. Right. And I just thought, man, that's like an ant cap, like going <laughs> crazy, right? <laughs> yes, that was a great scene. Good scene. Sure, yeah. You want to live up to your reputation, get you know, reputation to be super strong in an ant cap society, just like it is in today, but even more so in an ANCAP society. Yeah, be held accountable. I think you even used that word accountable uh, for your own actions. Yeah, so nice way to tie some anarchy into the back end of a two-hour episode here. There it is. Everybody Two minutes of anarchy (laughs) into a two-hour episode. That's right. Just tack it on at the end and and we can stamp our approval on it. Well, I got to say, this has been a a far different movie or experience doing this movie than I kind of was expecting. Um, Each night that we pushed this off, I I kept thinking in my mind, you know, what I was going to say that night and and sort of preparing in my head and not writing it down. And uh, I eventually wrote some stuff down today and we didn't do any of that either. So... (laughs) Uh, we just meandered all over the place, but it's been great having you guys. So, uh, Doc and Pat, uh, why don't you just remind our audience where they can find your stuff and, and more about you just a little bit, and then we'll do the uh, the final uh, shutdown here. Uh, I don't think we're going to do any caffeine turn overdrive because it's already like 2 in the morning for you guys. Yeah, um, just you can find me doing the occasional um, guest posts on the actual Anarchy blog site, which I thoroughly enjoy. And I will eventually be having a podcast come out in the future um, that's going to be focusing on books and literature in general and all things publishing. And that's about it for me. Thank you guys for having me on again. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Doc. We do appreciate having you on. And Patrick, you got your 30-second elevator speech down. I know you do. (laughs) Yeah. Elevator of blood coming out. Uh, Yeah. Uh, That sounds actually like a great um, little project you got planned there, Doc. Like yeah, but uh, yeah, actually, uh, Liberty Weekly podcast, on the contrary, uh, you can find me at libertyweekly.net. I should have an episode out on Sunday simultaneously with this release, although I have no idea what it's going to be about yet, but look for that. Uh, we do a podcast uh, just about libertarian legal theory as the focus, uh, but we also have a lot of cool guests on. And um, if you'd like, check us out. We're on all, all of your uh, normal podcasting catchers, podcatchers, or podcasting platforms. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music. So check us out. All right. Very good, sir. Well, this has been the Actual Anarchy Podcast, episode 48. So you can find that at actualanarchy.com slash 48 if you like what we do here. Check us out at the tip jar page or our Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash Rothbard, and support us at various levels and get various goodies. And uh, that's really all I have to say at this point. Uh, Robert, any final thoughts? Then we can say goodnight. Just take care of yourselves. Live free. 
give somebody a hug, tell them you love them, and listen to Actual Anarchy. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. All right, peace out. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do